we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. At least it usually is uh, on this occasion. I suppose we're talking about the, the man known as Terry Bollea, sometimes known as Hollywood. Hulk Hogan, sometimes known as just good old Hulk Hogan. This, of course, is one of our off-topic episodes. Now, usually I talk about uh, mysterious, unsolved things uh, with a, an attempt to remain critical but never cynical. I suppose on this occasion, if you believe any of the lies told by Mr. Hogan or Mr. Balea, uh, I suppose you would be believing weird things indeed. So my name is Kean. As always, I'm coming to you from the cabin in the woods located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork. And yes, this is one of our off-topic episodes. A bit odd. Not really representative of what we usually do, but I do these things once in a while. They do seem to go down well. They do seem to be popular. This one in particular um, was much requested. So this is actually part three of our uh, our very long-awaited fictional life of Hulk Hogan. I'd say it, it was maybe a year, maybe even more, that we last tackled this. So what happened was I read one of his, <laughs> one of Hulk Hogan's supposed biographies and made loads of notes and called up my brother, Donald Gill. He's Dr. Donald Gill now, a professor of Hoganomics, amongst other things. And we chatted about what, how much of this stuff was real, how much of it was not. I think even if you're not interested in wrestling, you'll get... A bang out of this. I think you'll enjoy it. I think it's silly. I think it's funny. I think it's a, a bit of a palate cleanser, as people tend to say online. Um, it won't make a whole lot of sense if you don't go back and listen to parts one and two. So maybe get caught up on those being as it was a very, very long time ago. Um, Donald is an insane wrestling nerd and throws around some kind of insider language a little bit so we i'm just trying to think now we say we use phrases like face and heel within wrestling a, a, a face is a good guy within the fiction of the world of wrestling uh, heel is a bad guy kayfabe means that um you know the, the fictional world of the wrestling if, you, if you're keeping kayfabe you are adhering to the the fictional story within the wrestling and um, if you're doing a, a work that means that you are talking or behaving in a way that is in line with that fictional world if you're doing what's called a shoot that means that you have somehow broken through the fictional uh, broken through the fourth wall and something real about you maybe your own feelings or emotions are coming out um, when you should be playing a character and all of that gets a little bit mixed up especially in the life of this Hulk Hogan being as he is a massive massive liar so that's really all I'm going to say except that you can get in touch with us as always, over on Twitter, I'm still at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, I'm still Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as always, you can uh, chuck us a few shekels over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. I do have loads of cryptozoology themed things that people have been talking about this week that I want to comment on, but this isn't the place for it. You're going to have to hold tight for the next episode. Beer for this episode. This is a good one. It's called Devil's Hell's Lager, and this is from... Killarney Brewing. Killarney, of course, being in County Kerry. And this one has a good story behind it. Uh, they write, Local legend tells of a fierce battle between Thor and the devil. Thor cast down a lightning bolt after lightning bolt upon the devil, who retaliated by tearing up the earth and hurling it back. The resulting basin filled up with water and became known as the devil's punch bowl. That being, of course, a geological feature 
of the mountains of Kerry. Some slightly questionable folklore there, mixing and matching uh, different uh, regional folklores. But the kind of nonsense story I think that uh, Hulk Hogan would indeed appreciate. So, so get ready for The Fictional Life of Hulk Hogan, Part 3. What's up, dude? I was born, I was bred, I was southern fed. Got a crazy idea running through my head. California is a place that I had to be. Then a speech in the pit really set me free. Oh, yeah. So we'll remind listeners that no research has been done for this. We're relying entirely on Donald's uh, inbuilt <laughs> store of knowledge. Um, and my reading of the book, which was now, God, over a year ago, probably. My research is an entire lifetime of misspent folly. So I did, I did take a listen to the end of the last episode. We finished up talking about the heroin, not heroin. Why do I keep wanting to say heroin? the um, steroid trials. (laughs) And one of the big sections of this one, I think is going to be um, Hogan's uh, WCW years. And I want, I want to talk about the Monday night wars a little bit, because that's something I remember from maybe not as it happened, but like we definitely were reading about it afterwards and watching documentaries about it. And it was kind of folded into part of the wrestling mythology. Absolutely. It forms the Monday night wars are kind of, they've been, uh, uh, yeah, it folded into a, an absolutely vital part of the kind of, I suppose, official historiography of how wrestling is remembered because WWE won that war and then got to not just uh, defeat WCW, but buy them and then use the tape library for its own sometimes revisionist purposes. Yeah. So the Monday Night Wars is very, um, it's apocryphal and it's also hagiographic for kind of Vince's official narrative. It's a bit of an end of history moment, isn't it? Where like <laughs> all, all the big, the big fight has ended now, you know, the, the commies are gone. <laughs> Vince, yeah. And very, Vince. very much like the, the aftermath of Fukuyama's end of history thesis. Um, <laughs> even in the, the period where that seemed viable, it was ridden with tension and, um, you know, much as the nineties, politically seemed to be the triumphant march of um, neoliberalism and whatnot. Turns out there was lots of problems with that, even at the time. It's just that, you know, they weren't, those cracks weren't allowed to be seen. And equally so, WWE's kind of post-WCW ascent to the supreme hierarchy of wrestling monopoly, kind of even at the time, the problem with that was in many ways apparent, although it took more well, you know, the passage of, of greater time for all people in the kind of, inter- especially internet wrestling community to kind of reflect upon it and say, wow, this was a nightmare for all involved. So before we get into the details of um, WCW and this this battle between World Championship Wrestling and World, what was it? <laughs> World Wrestling cool. Federation. Yeah, the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> as it was, as it was. At, um, at the time. I just wanted to say that since we spoke last, there, there was a bit of a meme going around in the last year 
which was Hulk Hogan lies. A lot of people sent this to me and it, it's just a list of like daft things that Hogan has claimed over the years, which is kind of the theme for this series. Um, most of these things would have been known to us, but I just, some of them are, are pretty good. It's, it's stuff like Hulk Hogan claims that he was asked to play bass for Metallica. was a, a, fa- a favorite one. Hulk Hogan yeah. claims that uh, the George Foreman grill was originally, he was supposed to be the endorsee for that, but he missed one phone call because he was picking his kids up from school and that was it. The deal went through. The, <laughs> the guys at the company just said, oh, who else can you get on the phone? George Foreman. <laughs> and uh, credit words too, that the, that uh, Twitter thread is by Alan Cheapshot. Uh, a stalwart of the internet uh, wrestling community on Twitter, Alan Cheapshot. Very is that where that also, originated? Yeah, and he also has a, a really fantastic thread that's picked up sometimes months and months apart, but it's kind of an ongoing repository of Vince McMahon stories, which is really <laughs> something to to enjoy as well. So credit where it's due there, Alan Cheapshot. On I think Twitter. I was listening to somebody talking at the time. I don't remember what show it was, but they were just pointing out like, what the timeline was like for when Metallica needed a new bass, bass player. This would have been when they were getting Jason Newstead and what Hulk Hogan would have been doing at this time and just how impossible it was that he would have been auditioning for anybody. Absolutely. He would have been uh, in 86, 87, whenever it was that they were doing those auditions. There's no way that fin- <laughs> that Hulk Hogan would have left wrestling. That was the absolute peak of his drawing power. He was making so much money and the future was effervescent he does play bass though that's not a lie Uh, yes i have unfortunately seen him play bass um but yeah he didn't play bass for metallica that didn't happen and i think my other favorite uh, from that list was hogan claiming that because of you know changing of time zones going back and forth between the us and japan at one point in the 80s he was wrestling more than 365 days a year (laughs) nonsense (laughs) yeah so let's pick up the thread then 1994, Hogan debuts with World Championship Wrestling, a wrestling organization based out of Atlanta, Georgia, um, owned at the time by uh, Ted Turner. Billionaire Ted. Billionaire Ted, yeah. As they like to call him in WCW. Yeah, so WCW was bought by Ted Turner from the ashes of what was called Jim Crockett Promotions, which was the Mid-Atlantic Territory. So this would be the the Carolinas, Virginia, uh, West Virginia, uh, Georgia, it's kind of mid-Atlantic as they call it, um, states um, and Jim Crockett Promotions was a kind of a family-run business going back a good couple of decades and kind of reached the peak of its uh, drawing power in the mid-1980s as the kind of flagship promotion of the National Wrestling Alliance, so the NWA. And this is where uh, Ric Flair was the kind of standard bearer throughout the 80s. And a bunch of other kind of very big name wrestlers, legendary, historically important wrestlers like Dusty Rhodes and Nikolai Volkov and the Four Horsemen, so Aaron Anderson, Tully Blanchard, etc., were all part of this um, promotion in the 80s. Now, they had some success and then that immediately kind of went to their heads and they did a bunch of terrible business uh, deals like they absorbed another promotion and moved all their offices to Dallas trying to be kind of swankier and more highfalutin and whatnot. And they also gave a bunch of what were called like balloon contracts to high, highly paid talent like Lex Luger and a couple of others, basically saying like, we will pay you, um, you know, this, 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 a, a large contract 
with a certain type of pay-per-view revenue in mind. And the balloon payments were to come not based on the money that they were actually coming in, but based on these kinds of projections. And essentially what happened was because they started doing somewhat well on pay-per-view, Vince played hardball with the pay-per-view providers and started to either tell uh, pay-per-view providers that they wouldn't be able to run WrestleMania or Royal Rumble unless um, the pay-per-view providers agreed not to run NWA shows or else Vince would put pay-per-view competition directly up against the NWA content. So the Survivor Series and things like that were kind of the first examples of that. So in, in any case, all of these balloon payments ended up essentially making JCP, Jim Crocker Promotions, insolvent. And then they were bought out by Ted Turner because they were being shown on Turner's TV channels. Uh, TBS, Turner Broadcasting Systems, was the main one. So at this time in 1994, WCW, as it gets renamed, has been under Turner ownership for about six, seven years. And it's been kind of chronically mismanaged. Um, kind of legendarily mismanaged. Some of the great wrestle crap moments happened during this kind of time period. There is a, a very famous like wrestle crap pay-per-view ending in uh, a show in 1991 called uh, Capital Combat. It's held in Washington, D.C. And Turner Broadcasting was trying to do a co-promotion with the newly released on VHS Robocop 2. And Sting has a match where Robocop is ringside. Or sorry, Sting is in a cage ringside and Robocop comes out and like opens up these very obviously plastic bars to like break him from the prison. And then Sting and Robocop celebrate in the ring. Uh, there's another there was a Chamber of Horrors match where Abdullah the Butcher got electrocuted in, a, in an electric chair. <laughs> All these kinds of awful things. They did these um, like kind of promotional films to uh, try to drum up interest in forthcoming pay-per-view events where like Vader is living in a lair at the top of a mountain. The White Big Castle. Van Vader. Big Van Vader. And he, Can I just say, I, I always presumed that his name was like, they were trying to imply that he was like Dutch. You know, he was like Van Vader or Von Vader. <laughs> when in fact, he just owned a big van and was able to drive other wrestlers around. <laughs> What's very funny is that Vader himself, he died a couple of years ago, but he swore up and down that he was called Vader because uh, there was like a, an ancient Japanese boogeyman like that was that went by that name. And it was all closely tied to like samurai mythology and all this kind of stuff when there's no such thing it's just it was a star wars name <laughs> you know i mean that's, that's just it but anyway they made all these kinds of like promotional films with the white castle of fear and sting had a match with jake the snake where they like went in the video going up to it they went into like a dodgy saloon and and they had to do spin the wheel make the deal and they gamble <laughs> on this uh, kind of like winning streak from style the, from, from the point of view of the consumer right for like for, for the product itself, which is a real Vince word, the product. Like, what were they do? Was it, what, what was fundamentally different about it from WWF? You know, was, for two things to coexist, they have to have a niche. They have to be slightly different. Well, WCW's kind of problem throughout this time period is that it was trying to basically copy WWF all the time. And they were hiring people who uh, were either spent forces in the wrestling business. Yeah. Like, there's, a, there's kind yeah. of like... Um, a longstanding uh, kind of common sense or whatever that like bookers, so the people who make the matches and predetermine the outcomes or whatever, have a couple of good years in them and then they fall off a cliff. 
It's just like most history seems to show us that booking wrestling is very, very hard to do. Very, very hard to get right. It's very uh, time consuming, very emotionally draining. You've got all these, you know, competitive personalities to man manage and all the rest of it. And it seems that like even the best bookers ever who can tell like long term storylines with emotionally satisfying finishes and building new stars, they just run out of gas. So WCW at this time had a bunch of those kind of characters who maybe had success at some time, but they were a spent force or out of touch. And then they had a bunch of like people who were kind of creatures of the corporate rather than the wrestling world. So like famously, some of the worst stuff ever done in WCW was done under the stewardship of a guy called Jim Hurd, who was like primarily known for running Pizza Hut. (laughs) (laughs) And then he came into wrestling and created all these kinds of terrible characters like the Candy Man, whose gimmick was that he threw sweets at the kids and they'd (laughs) like this. He also had Arachna Man, which was just a Spider-Man ripoff. Uh, The Humpbacks, which were two guys that would like, they would gimmick them up to look like hunchbacks and put like pillows in their their singlets. And then the joke would be that like, you can't pin them because their shoulders can't touch the mat. When did Gene Simmons' (laughs) demon wrestler come into it? Much, much later. Yeah, much later. Yeah, like 99, the Kiss Demon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When Kiss played the Kiss Demon to the ring on Nitro in in 99, that was the worst rating that they had ever done up to that point. Um, but anyway, all this to say that WCW was, it was trying to shed its image of the 80s, which was the golden period of the Ric Flairs and all that, which was kind of like Southern wrestling. So sp- Vince was all sports entertainment. We're not the, as Vin- he, Vince would always say, we're not Smokey Bingo Halls and Army Lodges and whatever, <laughs> Veterans Halls. We're not that. We are a glitzy, shiny product designed for like IP marketing and selling pencil cases to kids and mm. toys and, and all sorts of like licensing, merchandising opportunities, so on and so forth. Whereas the Southern wrestling, you know, it's like if you look at the old videos of Ric Flair, it's, it's a kind of a crappy looking little t- TV studio. And he's just he's he's selling you with the promos, but it's yeah. not especially glitzy or whatever. Um so they were trying to move past that and bring in the kids audience. And again, you have all these corporate kind of types who are motivated kind of by prevailing trends in the industry rather than a commitment to wrestling and, you know, guys in, under, guys in underpants slicing their foreheads open so that the grannies in the front row think that this is a real blood feud. They're not motivated by that. So that's why you end up with, again, like over the top comical uh cinema style or cinema i don't know cinematic is what i want to say cinematic style promo videos where like british bulldog and vader are fighting on the beach and then an, a yacht blows up and it you didn't know they have, did, did insane clown posse fight with, with with for them at some point or am i confusing yes but again no, oh, much, no much, i did, much they later. did yeah we have one of them gets thrown off a bus and cracks his head open yet yeah, forgot about yeah, that, that but that's all, that's all much, much there. We're talking like okay, again, okay, okay. Five, five, six, seven, eight years later. That's in the, in the death knell of WCW. They were trying, trying everything. anything. And so they were got... throwing incredible amounts of money at everybody and, and giving big names in WWF, like massive contracts to bring them over. Yeah. And what really happens in 94, crucially, is that Flair got to know Hogan a bit when Flair spent two years in WWF, 91 to 93. And he got to know Hogan. So then in 94, when Hogan is fighting with Vince and he, they're all out of sorts with each other and the golden era has kind of come to an end and 
Vince wants to push guys who don't look like they're on steroids and Vince wants to push younger guys. And so Hogan kind of takes some time off and he starts working on his first TV show, Thunder in Paradise, which is night <laughs> night rider with a boat. It literally is night boat. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's horrendous. It's better music. So, uh, Ric Flair, who's working for WCW at this time, and WCW has just come under the, the stewardship of Eric Bischoff, who was basically uh, a commentator and a nobody. But when they were looking for someone to um, take on the reins after like multiple failed, horrendous leaders of the or presidents or executive vice president, I suppose it would have been called of the company, Eric Bischoff, you know, he put forward a pretty good pitch and nobody else around had all that much energy or enthusiasm to offer fourth division. And Eric Bischoff's a very slick guy and he's a salesman. He, he had been working before he got into wrestling, selling like a kind of karate kid games door to door. Didn't he claim so, at some point that he first got in touch with Hulk Hogan to try and get him to license his idea for the Hulk Hoagie, a correct. sandwich, a Hogan themed sandwich. Well, that's one of the things that he did when he went to meet him. So Flair sets up the meeting with Bishop because Flair was working for Bishop under WCW. And uh, one of the ways in which Bischoff kind of sells Hogan on coming to WCW is you're not just going to work for WCW, you're going to work for Turner Broadcasting. And Turner Broadcasting is this, you know, entertainment juggernaut. Um, they own a bunch of sports teams in the state of Georgia, like the Atlanta Braves and I think the Atlanta Hawks baseball team or, or basketball. I might be wrong there, but they're like this, you know, I mean, CNN is hmm. Turner, right? Like, so they're enormous. At least they were. I mean, I don't know what their current standing is or who owns them or whatever. But at that time, it was kind of like, and, and Ted Turner himself was a wrestling fan. He always said that when he was building up his TV channels in the 70s, one of his like surefire ratings um, winners was, uh, was wrestling. And so he kind of had an emotional soft spot for it. That's one of the things that like is, I won't say it's completely gone today, but you know, the way that corporations have gone and, it's all so depersonalized. There was these, these idiosyncratic kind of like CEOs or presidents or whatever who would just have a softball for something and then all of a sudden it's kept alive. In any case, Ted Turner kind of gave Bischoff a carte blanche to bring Hogan in. And so they said, yeah, like we'll, we'll get you licensing deals up the wazoo, including the Hulk Hogan, which is what turned into Pastamania. Oh, I didn't know that. That was yeah. the same. Yeah, so Hulk Hogan's... Ultimately failed uh, pasta themed restaurant in the uh, Mall of America in Minneapolis, <laughs> Minnesota, <laughs> biggest mall in the world. Uh, and, I was uh, there once, once and once well, only. You did not have the opportunity to have no. a Hulk Hogan or <laughs> a pasta mania. Badly. <laughs> so Hulk Hogan comes in for pretty ridiculous money um, because WCW really, this was a shot across the bow in the sense that like we're a serious wrestling company now because with Hogan comes uh, a spotlight. And again, you have to remember, like it's still this way today where a lot of people, they are, they just follow the stars and, you know, a lot of people don't really, I mean, maybe given how long WWE has been on top and how long it's spent on top by itself, unchallenged in basic monopoly status, People these days probably think of WWE first, but I think still there's an association of the star over the business itself. And so a lot of people would just watch where Hulk Hogan was. And so he comes in for the big money match, which they never did in WWF, which was Hogan versus Flair, the two biggest stars of the 80s. 
the star of Southern Wrestling in uh, the East Coast versus the New York, um, you know, big sports entertainment style uh, superstar, the transcendent figure in the entire, I don't know, sport or whatever. So they come in, they have a match in Orlando, Florida in the summer of 1994 at the Bash at the Beach. Hogan uh, comes to the ring with Shaquille O'Neal, who's the kind of big, probably not the biggest. I suppose Michael Jordan was still the biggest, but among the biggest basketball stars in the country at that time, a big transcendent figure. Don't forget, like Shaquille O'Neal in the 90s was, I mean, there was a video game called Shaq Fu, yeah, for yeah. God's sake. <laughs> he wasn't, and he, he had some terrible superhero movie as well that I'm yeah. pretty sure we rented uh, from Extra Vision. Where he's a genie or something. Yes, horrendous stuff. <laughs> so Hogan comes in uh, to face Flair, who's the champion. And of course, his first night in the, in the company, he lifts up the big boot, drops the leg, one, two, three, clean in the middle, clean as a sheet, one, two, three, brother. And so Hogan lifts up the belt and he is the champion. And so then what happens essentially is given the contract that Hogan has, which is for an absurd amount of money, and pay-per-view points. And now Bischoff always defended this by saying that the money that he was given was coming out of Turner's coffers rather than WCW's coffers. So that Hogan's contract was not, like the, the bloated size of it was not depleting WCW's uh, financial capacity to, you know, bring in and pay other talent. But... I think the big problem is that once you start paying anyone that kind of money, they can't be anything other than the most significant and main event, no matter what. So obviously it makes sense for Hogan to be the spotlight and featured performer when he first comes in. But in kind of short order, the entire company becomes molded in his image and everybody who works there uh, kind of just has to like... Um, adapt themselves towards like, what do we do to, to keep Terry happy? Because <laughs> um, Hogan is an intensely paranoid man, as we've discussed previously, and no amount of money and no amount of power and no amount of kind of bootlicking can satiate that deep, dark need within him to be free from threat. So um, in short order, all of, <laughs> all of his uh, kind of buddies and support system from WWF are brought over. Some of them directly from WWF. Some of them, like literally from sitting at home, farting into the chair at you know at their at their house. The likes of Brutus Beefcake and whatnot, who was a, a, a Hogan stooge going back to the even before he was famous. Um, others like uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Earthquake and anybody who ever essentially and Kamala, anybody who ever drew a dime, as they say in the wrestling business, with Hogan is brought in. And in, you know, short order, the boot is lifted, the leg is dropped, one, two, three, brother. And in the middle of the ring, clean as a sheet, Hogan has to get that visual pinfall, brother. And so he starts beating all of the old WWF crowd. And at this stage, I would say, like, the modus operandi of the, con of the company is, if someone is flicking through the channels and they have either through osmosis or through direct engagement, a memory and understanding of wrestling at its peak in the 80s, they will see that again in front of us. Oh, Jim Duggan, I remember him. Does he still carry the stick? And then Jim Duggan is carrying his two by four stick to the ring and says, oh, and you say, oh yeah. And then Hogan comes out 
You're like, oh, brilliant. Hulk Hogan, the wrestling guy. And, and for all intents and purposes, it's 1994, 1995, but it's actually 1985, 1986. <laughs> but Hogan is starting to get some booze from the real fans. So obviously the kids are kind of being start, starting to get pulled in a little some of us, especially the diehard wrestling fans who are there to see Ric Flair and people kind of work um, a good wrestling style, they're absolutely sick of Hogan because it's the exact same act that he's done since 1986, 1987. So when Hogan comes into WWF in 84, he's still kind of a little bit rough around the edges. The, the act is still somewhat rugged. Um, but by 86, 87, it's become, you know, he's got the greatest hits package and it never changes. And so you've, if you've been following wrestling, you're seeing this and seeing this and seeing this and it gets super old and especially seeing it in the context of the company that used to be good wrestling matches. Hogan's not a good wrestler. He never really was, but he's uh, an entertaining, charismatic presence and he's a good promo. And again, the boot goes up, the leg goes down one, two, three. But there's only so many times you can see that, and he starts getting booed. How does the NWO come about? Well, this is this is the critical context. He starts getting booed now in the, in this kind of space where again it's being shifted into uh, into a bit of a, a recreation of the '80s WWF. Hogan is again he's wanted to do two things: make himself comfortable with his old buddies, so they get they bring Randy Savage over. That's important. Hogan has to beat him a few more times. <laughs> and again they also bring over total lumps like brutus beefcake mr t even comes back at one stage um which is just like mr t in 1994 was not a figure of any cultural import like even <laughs> by that stage and we would remember this growing up like by 1994 oh, he was a joke yeah yeah the everything 80s was yeah, seen as yeah, yeah. horrendous and mr t was like pretty goddamn 80s as far as things that yeah. can be 80s go but Hogan is still like, he's, lo he's lost touch completely. So he's bringing in Mr. T for a main event at Starcade, which is the, the showcase uh, <laughs> pay-per-view for WCW. Hogan has a match with Brutus Beefcake, who's called The Butcher <laughs> at yeah. Starcade 94. <laughs> and it's just, it's total, total shite. And so he's getting booed. He's having horrendous programs. There's a terrible terrible match with three cages on top of each other where Hogan and Macho Man face the alliance to end Hulkamania, which is like the Four Horsemen and the Dungeon of Doom, which is Kevin, Us Kevin Sullivan and the Giant and a bunch of and Ed Leslie, who's Bruce Beefcake this stage is playing a character called Zodiac and all he can say is yes or no. He's painted white and black, all this <laughs> terrible stuff. But they also have this guy who looks a bit like Bane from um, Batman and Robin, and he's called uh, the final, uh, they were going to call him the final solution until someone <laughs> chimed in and said, please don't do it. So they call him the ultimate solution, <laughs> if you can believe that. Uh, just, and this, so, so you can imagine Hogan and Macho Man beating up nine people in three cages and winning. At some point, it's like, what are we even doing here? So Hogan is starting to get, get booed. And he flirts a little bit here and there in a few programs with wearing black to see can he get away without the red and yellow and have that tougher edge but he's terrified to go heel right he's terrified to become a bad guy <laughs> he's 
flirting around with, with changing his look, including wearing a wig into the crowd, or sorry, into the ring a few times. He does a, a really hilarious program as part of his feud with the Dungeon of Doom, where <laughs> they shave his mustache off. <laughs> which is a dastardly heel move they knock him out and then take out a clippers and shave off his mustache so he, that's his excuse then to try out you know would what would a new hogan be like anyway none of this stuff works and because he, he keeps reverting to the mean because he hasn't actually changed his character <coughs> excuse me in the uh spring then of 1996 two wrestlers who had been on the ascent in wwf um decide not to renew their deals and they take big money offers to go over to WCW from Eric Bischoff. These are Diesel, a.k.a. Kevin Nash, and uh, the recently deceased Razor Ramon, a.k.a. Scott Hall. So Scott Hall comes over first in the uh, late spring, early summer of 1996, and he steps into the ring in the middle of a match and says, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. Um, And he says, you want a war? You're going to get a war. Next week, I'll be back with a friend. And so the whole wrestling world is completely titillated and excited. What does this mean? And the implication, although Eric Bischoff and other WCW people had to deny this and had to deny it in court, but the implication was these New York guys, these WWF guys are here to invade and they're here to take over. And so the next week, Scott Hall shows up again and uh, once more in the middle of a match and Kevin Nash is there with them. And again, the implication is, oh my God, this is a full-scale invasion. And so in order to stop this, they uh, end up putting together a match at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. This would be July 1996. And it's Scott Hall and Kevin Nash who are still unnamed because they're not sure... They're thinking about what could they call them because they still want to maintain the implication that it's Razor and Diesel. And at one stage, they were thinking about calling Kevin Nash Axel. (laughs) Were they they not allowed to use those names or did they just, they weren't sure what direction to take the character? Those, so Razor, Ramon and Diesel would be- Oh, they would have been trademarks of of Vince. Yeah, Yeah. And, and, and Vince actually, incredibly, brought out characters in those gimmicks on Raw. Different, so, played by different people. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the fake Diesel was actually played by Glenn Jacobs, who is the current mayor of Knoxville, Kentucky, and better known as... Yes. That's gotta be! That's gotta be Kane! Kane. <laughs> uh, resident libertarian, Trump boot-licking moron. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you want to piss yourself off, you can follow him on Twitter for some political wisdom. In any case... So they have this match and it's WCW's three finest and it's uh, Sting, Lex Luger and Macho Man against the Outsiders as they're starting to be called. And because it's three on two, at some stage, uh, the WCW team has the advantage. It's not quite sure how the match is going to end. Anyway, out comes Hulk Hogan and famously Bobby Heenan on commentary says, whose side is he on? And he comes out and he drops the leg I think on Randy Savage and it's the greatest shock in wrestling. Hogan has gone heel and he's gone heel with two younger, cooler guys who have this. No, hang on. His moment of reveal is, is when he also rips the shirt, right? And shows he's wearing the, the black and white. Um, is this the same, the same uh, match? No. no, that's different. No. Yeah. That was when he was flirting with 
just being the regular Hulk Hogan, but in black colors. But is, is, in, there, in not, uh, is there not one a bit where like he has the shock reveal and he takes, but actually if you had been there and been able to see him, you would have seen the, like that his trunks were the wrong color. So you would have known that he was about to do. Have you never heard that story? No. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that was, that, that was, was an like earlier, much, an earlier, yeah, much earlier. And he wasn't going full heel. He was just trying to be like the dark side of Hulk Hogan. Brother. Okay. I, I conflated those two stories. I thought, yeah. I thought that's, that the big NWO reveal was kind of redundant. Like it worked if you were watching the camera, but it wouldn't have worked if you were there. Yeah. That scene that you're describing is when he actually takes an, an issue of the wrestling observer newsletter uh, by Dave Meltzer and says like, this thing says that Randy Savage is, in, is injured and can't wrestle tonight. Well, look, here he is brother. And Randy Savage is there with his arm taped up because he's definitely injured, but he's has to for, he has to be forced to wrestle because Hogan has to defeat the wrestling journalists. And then Hogan says in a legendary line, observe this brother. And then he throws the wrestling observer into uh, like a, a bin that, and lights it on fire. And then he, he, what he does is actually he takes off the black clothes to reveal that he's wearing okay. the red and yellow underneath and that he was good all along. Okay. Despite a burning a wrestling <laughs> dirt sheet like a moron. But anyway, he drops the leg on Macho Man at Bash of the Beach 96 and t- gives a, a very, very famous promo in the ring afterwards where the ring fills up with garbage because the fans are so upset yes, yes and uh, mean gene says to him as far as i'm concerned hulk hogan all this garbage here in the ring represents what you've just done and he says you know something mean gene this is the this is the future right here and he says this is the new world organization <laughs> <laughs> so he flubs the line on the promo but anyway it goes down as nwo <laughs> and the, the nwo basically becomes like um a legendary gimmick, an unbelievable storyline, a paradigm shift within wrestling. They do a bunch of really innovative stuff with the promos where Bischoff was very smart about this, where he saw three big, strong personalities in Nash, Hall and Hogan. And there's just no way that you're going to be able to balance out the three of them and especially not the style of promo that Nash had, which was very like laconic and sarcastic. Hall was kind of uh, was yeah was was a bit sarcastic too, but he had still a lot of the Razor Ramon mannerisms. And then you've got Hogan, who is essentially still cutting promos like it's nineteen eighty five. So in order to harmonize out this presence, they would do these very cool uh, promos where it was almost like guerrilla style black and white filmmaking, where they would do like a super cut of the different uh, speakers. Um, Again, almost like a guerrilla press conference. And they would do that new, 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 new world order. And they do that like it would cut into the show and say the, the following announcement has been paid for by the new world order. And it was like the only reason they have you know time on the show is that they're buying it. Um, and they would have these, again, kind of like super cuts of the promos rather than giving them live. And it, it just became something. It was like a very different presentation, shaky cameras, different type of, the, you know, looks and it became a game changer in short order. Yes. Indeed. So that's, he, he becomes Hollywood Hulk Hogan. At this so, point. Yeah. He says uh, that, you know, he hates wrestling and he hates the fans and they need to respect that he's a transcendent superstar <laughs> beyond wrestling. And then he changes his name. Yeah. So it's still kind of Hulk Hogan. Sometimes it's Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Sometimes it's just purely Hollywood Hogan, but yeah. basically he goes full on heel. And it's 
in all honesty, like it's one of the great turns ever in terms of both just execution, in terms of the money that it drew. And he became a fantastic heel. And he became actually almost like a cool heel where people liked him and hated him. It was very yeah. effective in all regards. And he started cutting, you know, the same type of promo, but just, you know, shitting on the fans and, and all that. And of course, in short order, he goes on to win the belt at the next pay-per-view and famously spray paints the big gold WCW belt yeah. with the NWO, yeah. which becomes that. another famous iconic kind of look. And, uh, he starts, you know, he's back in a big way The because he was on his last legs. The air was out of the tires and, you know, he was in deep trouble in terms of his position in the wrestling business in 95, which was a horrendous year for WCW. They're hemorrhaging money. They're paying Hogan big money. Um, and he basically ran the whole company, but he was running it into the ground because all he wanted to do was to bring in jabronis from the 80s and, and have them job to him. And so the whole business gets a shot in the arm in 96 from this NWO angle. And uh, he works Roddy Piper at the end of the year, who comes in from WWF. And he Roddy Piper cuts a famous promo at the end of Halloween Havoc saying, you beat everybody, Hogan, but you never beat me. And Piper was very savvy that he never allowed Hogan to job him out during their peak run together around 85, 86. And so Roddy Piper comes in has a match with Hogan and puts him to sleep with the sleeper, but non-title brother. So <laughs> Hogan does not in fact job. He lost, but he didn't job. Nice. Well, we'll have a, a little intermission because uh, something else that happened in 1995 uh, from a chapter in the book, the book by the way is just called Hollywood Hulk Hogan. This is for people who remember millions of years ago when we started this, we're supposedly, <laughs> Uh, epic of Gilgamesh. We're supposedly going through Hogan's first book, where he's still pretending like everything was awesome, and he his second his second book is kind of more performative uh, learning and, and you know contrition, where it's like, oh, I did bad things, but now I've become I've, I've transcended, I've come through. This one is is much more like like a Gene Simmons biography kind of. But in 1995, from a chapter called Hulk Rules, which is about 60 words long. It's one of those infamous, super short chapters. Uh, he talks about the recording of an album called Hulk Rules by Hulk Hogan and the Wrestling Boot Band. And the, the story he tells here, which is complete fiction, is that himself and Jimmy Hart, Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, uh, sat down in a dressing room and just were so taken by the story of this little kid wrestling fan who had cancer that they wrote a song just on the spur of the moment. And then they stayed up all night writing more songs on the spur of the moment um, using, he says, when we, oh, we sat up and wrote 10 or 11 songs that night because once we wrote one, we were on a roll, brother. <laughs> when we recorded the basics soundtrack, didn't even use a drummer. We put the songs to a little rhythm master, a machine that played funky beats. Then we plugged in guitars, keyboards, and bass. And then at the studio, we added horn players and some chicks to sing backup, including my wife. There are definitely no horns on that album. It's all oh, two, finger, two fingers on an eight-inch long Casio. And so I think I think any interested uh, listeners, do yourself a favor. Check out Hulk Rules. All the songs are on YouTube. Um, astonishing stuff. It's one of the, yeah, it's like legit Truly one of the 
funniest bad albums ever you know it's not just like bad in a way where you just to turn that shite off i don't want to hear it no it's jaw on the floor it's, oh my god like tommy wise old bad kind of yeah and uh good songs include um i want to be a hulkamaniac having yep. fun with my family and friends or hulk uh, raps um <laughs> there's also beach patrol which is a good one and the uh the song about um, another Hulk. What is it? A Hulkamaniac in heaven? Yeah, Hulkster in heaven. Hulkster in heaven is is scandalously um, false. the The premise behind it is that he was wrestling in at the SummerSlam '92 event in Wembley, and he heard about a a kid who had terminal cancer. And um, I mean, there might have been that a child been there a, who was yeah, sick. That might have been a real thing. But Hulk Hogan was not there. No, he just lied about every other element of it. Um, so there's a chapter just kind of in 1996 kind of other things he was doing at this point making a, a number of films which I'll just briefly mention he was in The Secret Agent Club he was in San- Santa Horrible. with Muscles he was in an action adventure film oh he talked about Thunder in Paradise which at least watch the opening watch the opening credits to it because the the the, 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 the song is hilarious the um, song is an earworm to, yeah, to give me it's, credit it's good it's good stuff uh, Assault on Devil's Island, a uh, TV movie on Ted Turner's TNT. These are all um, films that he got as part of the deal with WCW, with Turner. Right. So these are all Turner Broadcasting, almost all straight to video. He are... was in Three Ninjas, High Noon at Mega Mountain. I didn't know that. Oh, that's what, that's what he was. He got the wig for that and oh. he tried, tried it out in the ring. <laughs> and it's, it's, I'll tell you why. Hogan, obviously Hogan's um, skullet is stupid and it's especially stupid when he's sweating in the ring and he gets, you know, the spaghetti strings. <laughs> but if you want to find out how to make it worse, it's like Hulk Hogan <laughs> with a wig is somehow even worse. Uh, the, the next thing I have flagged is chapter 58, Hogan for president, which is also a very short chapter, but basically inspired by the political ambition of uh, fellow wrestler Jesse Ventura, who of course becomes governor of minnesota hogan goes on he goes on he goes on a chat show he's talking jay leno jay leno yeah and he just makes out as if he just jay leno system why don't you become president you know you're so popular and he he considers this for a little while but then he realizes that he'd have to take a pay cut so he decides not to i and you know what given given this was in 1998 given the contract that hogan signed that year Probably true. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, it's definitely true. He was getting 650 grand per pay-per-view with multiple um, additional incentive-based bonuses and all this on top of it. His merchandise and royal um, and licensing royalties were through the roof, such to the point where like he was even getting paid when other people's merchandise sold. So it's basically like, since you're so integral to our business's success, if Ric Flair sells some merchandise. The only reason WC merchandise of any sort is selling is because of Hulk Hogan. Therefore, Hulk Hogan deserves a cut, even of Ric Flair merchandise, which is outrageous. And they, there's a line in his contract, which is hilarious, which basically says that should WCW set up a Hulk Hogan hotline where Hulk Hogan has to record anything for fans to call up and hear, Hulk Hogan must receive 100% of the profits. So why would they do that? Why would you? Yeah. So to return, would... returning to WCW and Hogan and Hogan's paranoia, right? So he, he starts, he's talking here about why he thinks things started to go bad for 
the NWO gimmick and for WCW. So he just talks about some of the problems that Bischoff had with running things. And then he says, the, the other problem was that Eric started listening to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They were of the opinion that wrestlers should talk more and not wrestle so much. Then Kevin Nash brought in some of his friends and they didn't fit in. So it became a bunch of bull instead of business. And he basically talks about like, you know, they did, they stopped listening to me and they started listening to these other guys. Um, and he talks about the split in the NWO. With the- I mean, the thing about it is, right, Kevin Nash have had a lot of sway and he's a very, you know, he's a bit like um, kind of person. He comes across as very intelligent if you don't know what a shyster sounds like, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so, so Nash had a lot of sway and he's kind of he's able to make things that unbelievably benefit him sound like common sense. Um, and Nash is kind of like one of these characters who, if you think like the money earned to bump ratio is kind of like one, one of the most successful wrestlers of a all bump time being a, like taking a hit in the ring or taking a yeah, fa- falling on your back basically yeah, right, okay. he took a, as few bumps as possible for the most money imaginable <laughs> um so yes all it is true that nash gained a lot of influence and it's true that hogan and nash butted heads very very significantly and there was massive jockeying for position backstage between the two of them but the main reason why the nwo gimmick ran uh, its course and started to hurt rather than help the company is because at the end of 1997, 18 months or thereabouts into the NWO run, there was a perfect opportunity for the blow off where Sting, who essentially had kind of walked away at the, you know, the, a couple of um, weeks into the, into the, uh, NWO angle, he walked off and started appearing, looking darker, slightly more ominous, started to shift his character away from the bright colored, blonde hair, spiky surfer sting and starts transitioning. Like like the crow kind of a thing, look, didn't he? Yeah, into the crow gimmick. And this develops over time and it starts to become kind of one of the big highlights of WCW shows where whenever the NWO, which was gaining in members to the point where it became so bloated, to all these jabroni losers were being brought in such to the point where, and again, this is how you dilute the, um, the, uh, the power of a concept is they had a B team and they called them the B team. Mm. Imagine that. So it's like, you know, not only were they the bums who had no business in there, but they were told, you were told watching it on TV. These are bums. They had different music. From the Wolf, main end of guys, or what? No, this is even pre Wolfpack. Right. So, Wolfpack was like a second version of the NWO that was equal to the black and white NWO. And they, they were, were then and black, fighting weren't they? red and black versus white and black. And they were fighting on an equal level. Whereas the B team were just the jabronis in the NWO <laughs> who didn't deserve to stand in the ring side by side with Hogan, Nash, and Hall. So, the NWO is bloated and they would do all these big beatdowns. And the thing is, because they were heels, they would always cheat. And then the big highlight of these Nitro shows throughout 1996 was that Sting would rappel down from the rafters with a baseball bat, wearing a big long trench coat and black clothes and this cool kind of crow-inspired face paint. And he'd beat them all up with the baseball bat and then rappel back up or whatever. And people couldn't get enough of this. And sometimes he would show up and just point the baseball bat at Hogan. And he didn't say a word for again over two years and it was just building and building and building to where when is sting going to finally 
kick the NWO's ass? And in particular, when is he going to kick Hollywood Hogan's ass? So this culminates at Starcade 97. Starcade, as I said, is the flagship pay-per-view, the WrestleMania of WCW. It actually predates WrestleMania. The first Starcade was in 83. The first Mania was in 85. So Starcade 97, they sold out the building. They did their best ever pay-per-view number. This is still kind of a big deal for WCW. And the Sting character is unbelievably hot. Um, the momentum going into this match is enormous. Uh, they invested in some really cool visuals for the Sting character. They did some like videos of him in a, you know, kind of a dilapidated building with the rain coming down and lightning across the sky. And they had this awesome voiceover where this child would say like an Avenger for justice cries <laughs> out in the dark. And they gave him this cool new theme song that was like bombastic and ominous. And they did a laser show in the roof of the building with Sting's face and a scorpion and all this. And then they have a shit match, him and Hogan. It's terrible because Hogan is crocked. He can't really wrestle. And he doesn't want Sting to get over. He wants to, as we've heard multiple times on this uh, <laughs> Epic of Gilgamesh, Hogan journey. Hogan wants to keep his heat, brother. He does not want to pass the torch. He wants an iron grip on the torch. Well, what should have happened is that Sting should have come out, beat up Hogan. Hogan gets a bit of a comeback. Sting fights it off and then just fucking annihilates him. And the crowd goes wild as Hogan is finally put in his place. The NWO is defeated. And we move on. The crowd wanted Hogan to lose. They wanted the NWO to get their comeuppance after beating people up on Nitro for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And instead, they do this awful awful like legendarily fucked finish where Hogan beats Sting with the leg drop clean in the middle and the referee be, because that, that is the job of a heel is to give you to get, that satisfying conclusion by, by losing at some point ex- after you've hyped everybody up with your exactly evening. but Hogan exactly he was having fun being a heel but he can't ever actually really be a heel because he can't let himself lose. Oh, he can be a heel, all right. Just <laughs> out of the ring. <laughs> yeah, healing the whole company. <laughs> so what happens is Hogan beats Sting, and everybody's, you know, sad and just like, oh, well, that's a wet fart of a finish. And then Bret Hart, who has just joined the company after the Montreal screw job a couple of weeks prior, comes down to the ring and says, That was a fast count. And he claps his hands. That was a fast count. But it wasn't a fast count. (laughs) So the story was supposed to be that Hogan wins, but the referee was paid off by Hogan to do a fast count. And then Bret Hart comes out and says, that was wrong. I'm going to set this right. I will now be the referee for the match and we'll restart it. Except the referee was, in fact, manipulated by Hogan, but not in storyline, in reality. (laughs) So instead of doing the fast count, as he was scripted to do, he did a regular count as Hogan told him to do. And this is how this is how things were unraveling in WCW at the time, where Nick Patrick, who was the referee, got his marching instructions from Eric Bischoff, and then he went to check with Hogan. Eric says, I should do this. Is that what I should do? And then Hogan said, The real said, power behind the throne, kind of. Exactly. And so they did a regular count. So even though in storyline, it's like Hogan didn't get the real pin yeah yeah in actuality we all saw him get the real pin 
Yeah, so it was completely incoherent. It. So then Bret Hart has to come out and say, that was a fast count, brother. We're going to start this again. And but it just looks fast. like they're colluding against Hogan. Instead exactly. Of, instead of demanding actual justice for what really happened. Yeah, okay. so, so they start the match again. Sting whips Hogan into the corner, gives him the stinger splash, pulls him down, and stork, scorpion deadlock. Bret, Bret Hart signals to the, to the timekeeper, ring the bell, he's submitted. And so then Sting wins, and everybody comes down and celebrates with the... Uh, with the baby face triumphant at last in the ring. But again, it's a, it's ultimately a wet fart because Hogan is still, we didn't feel, there's no emotional Hogan has given himself the moral win, kind of. Exactly. And so there's no, there's no possibility then for him to be sunsetted and we move on to the next thing. He's still at the forefront. And yeah. the NWO like won almost all their other matches on the Starcade 97 pay-per-view. And so we're still looking, going into 1998 with the NWO front and center, even though the gimmick is now tired. And kind of, again, the whole NWO wolf pack where Nash launches his own like brandy NWO, it's, it's all, it signals really that the gimmick is done and they're just, you know, artificially stimulating it to keep it alive on the chair. But it's, it's done. And so they're going down and down and down. And Hogan's act is getting increasingly tired. He, they do some decent business with some stupid gimmick matches where like Dennis Rodman comes in. Yeah, I remember that. Jay Leno does a match. <laughs> Jericho has a great book, uh, bit in his book where he talks about how he couldn't believe that Hogan would sell moves for Jay Leno. <laughs> Jay- which means selling moves means you make it look like the other guy is actually hurting you, just for people who are not so, yeah so Jericho talks in his book about like watching backstage with his jaw on the floor is like Jay Leno grabs Hogan in a wrist lock that looked <laughs> like it wouldn't even knock a grandmother over and Hogan is screaming in agony you know gesticulating wildly <laughs> to the camera but he, he and, probably wouldn't he wouldn't sell to like Andre the Giant like you know <laughs> and then uh, Jericho said, like, I learned from the master because the next morning I was in the airport and I saw the cover of USA Today and there was Hogan with his yeah. eyes closed and his yeah. mouth open, screaming yeah. with Jay Leno holding onto his wrist. <laughs> so that's how you play the game, brother. So next in the book, he talks about how WCW brings in um, a guy who is infamous, who's the, the writer Vince Russo. This guy gets a lot of flack so and, and hogan talks about how oh, this guy had it in for me and he was trying to get rid of me and so what what is the deal with this fellow because i hear he, he's a people people point to this guy as being one of the reasons why wrestling goes down the toilet yeah russo is a, an interesting character and a lot of people have strong opinions about him in the kind of wrestling world but most people can agree that when wwf started to revive itself and to drag itself out of the grave that WCW was working hard to put it in because the NWO revitalized the whole business, but it especially revitalized WCW. And famously, Nitro and Raw went on at the same time on Monday evenings. And for 83 weeks in a row, Nitro defeated Raw in the ratings, sometimes by a significant margin. And as WWE started to pull itself back together with the likes of Stone Cold and The Rock and Mankind and Triple H kind of leading the front, the head writer in the show was Vince Russo. And increasingly, they went towards a kind of a car crash style of TV with a lot of um, shock value, um, overt 
and often extremely tasteless like sex appeal like kind of going for the teenage boy market and whatnot Vince Russo was seen as kind of like the genius behind all this um but at some point uh, when Smackdown started he felt like he was working too much because he was writing two full tv shows and uh, Vince McMahon opted not to pay him anymore to do Smackdown so Vince Russo was upset and he gets offered to go over to WCW, which at this stage is starting to collapse. The, the ratings war is starting to be handily and decisively won by WWF. Eric Bischoff is out of gas. He's starting to kind of uh, crash personally. And the chain of command is, is in disarray. Again, you have Hogan, who's still the master manipulator, pulling the strings and kind of defeating positive initiatives like the, the big coronation of Sting at, night, at the end of 97, like, doesn't go as it should because of Hogan, he's manipulating. Nash is at this point now absolutely causing havoc. Um, in, again, in just in terms of like... Halloween havoc. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> there was many bad matches at Halloween havoc. A bunch of terrible stuff happens. Like Halloween havoc 1998, for example, involves a match between Hogan and Warrior, where Warrior comes back because Hogan has to you know get the win back. This is very important, right? Because Warrior defeats Hogan in 1990. So here we are in 1998. Hogan wants to get a visual pin brother over one of his old rivals. And Warrior just does a horrendous job with these long rambling promos that make no sense. He's basically like Warrior at this time had gone insane. And they have, I think we mentioned this on one of the other podcasts, like a legendarily horrendous match where, again, Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, gave it the minus five stars. Minus five stars. <laughs> Uh, it includes, and I've said this before, but it includes the famous log roll where yes, w- yes, yes, Warrior yes. Roll, roll, rolls on the ring and Hogan trips. <laughs> Pretends and to the, fall over him. <laughs> and the finale was where Hogan is supposed to like blow a fireball into Warrior's face, but instead the flash paper just burnt his own mustache off. <laughs> and Warrior still had to pretend as though it hit him. Anyway, all this kind of stuff is causing just maximum disruption in the in the WCW ranks and they extend the hand over to Vince Russo to pull him over and say like, here's carte blanche. You are now the head writer, do what you will. And so supposedly Russo comes in and says, the the problem with this company is that you're, you're pushing all the old guys and the young guys don't have a chance. And so Hogan claims that Vince Russo said that like, his mandate was to get rid of everybody who was over 40. And Hogan kind of said, well, good luck getting rid of me, brother. Now, they did try to use Hogan, I suppose, somewhat. Um, I'm going to say constructively, but they, you know, they had no choice but to use him because of the bloated size of his contract. But the problem is, if you want to use Hogan in a way that's going to like level up new talent, that's essentially impossible because of Article 11, subsection E of his contract which is that Hogan has to have creative control, brother. Meaning that you cannot book Hogan to lose without <laughs> Hogan's agreement. Hogan so Vince Russo <laughs> comes over. Now, Vince Russo, the big lesson that everybody learned about him ultimately was that he had a wide range of ideas, some good, some bad, some ugly, but that when filtered through the instincts and experience of Vince McMahon can be done very well. Now, the other th- side of this is that some of the stuff that Vince Russo even got through the Vince McMahon filter was okay in 1997, 1998, 1999, 
but is a horrendous embarrassment now. Like the Valvinus so like Att- attitude era, kind of, which was, yeah, like the t- a time which was famous for, yeah, teenage boy type stuff that's a bit lewd, it's a bit crude, it's fairly fairly old old fashioned now. Yeah, to to put it mildly, yeah, I mean, it, it, <laughs> I'm being polite. <laughs> it really that stuff has not aged well at all, and some stuff, if you look back at the attitude era, which would be like ninety seven to two thousand one, yeah. is fantastic. And some of it is, I mean, it's absolute head in your hands. God, please stop the pain level stuff. Like gold dust coming out with uh, like a ball gag in his mouth and being like whipped as though he's a BDSM character. There was all sorts of really, really regressive. um, Russo kind of has, you know, some, I don't know. There's some some demons in his mind that found their expression (laughs) in the wrestling storylines. Lots of bad stuff. The, again, the Valvinus kind of porn star character that would like grind was the, his. Who was the pimp? People. The Godfather. The Godfather. <laughs> and he would come out with his hose. Remember this? Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. And he would say, it's time for everybody to get on board the whole train. Yeah. Remember that? And he would say, pimping ain't easy. <laughs> so, all this kind of stuff. So, like, again, some of it is, is fun and lighthearted because we remember it with nostalgia, but, you yeah. know, it was, it was not a, uh, a data point on the arc of. Arc of progress lip bending <laughs> towards justice let's put it that way um so russo comes over to wcw famously he doesn't have the filter of vince mcmahon but according to him he had all of these quote-unquote standards and practices within turner broadcasting that he had to answer to so he said that the reason his stuff was terrible and didn't work is because um he couldn't do it to the full raunchy degree that made sense and he had to neuter things most people agree that like he just he was too invested in the car crash tv style and that you know an episode of nitro was like kind of 50 episodes of jerry springer smashed into one and you couldn't even make sense of it uh, they start to do all sorts of horrendous stuff kind of like we discussed earlier on where uh the misfits the band the misfits come in and wrestle a bit the insane clown posse come in and wrestle. They bring in the kiss demon. They put the belt on David Arquette twice. Yes, yes, yes. All this kind of horrendous stuff. They did like a a completely ludicrous storyline where all the old wrestlers like Sting and Lex Luger and Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan are called the Millionaires Club. And they feud with the young talent like Booker T and and, uh, Jeff Jarrett. And they're called the New Blood. And Hogan starts going around in a black bandana and uh, a vest that says F-U-N-B on it. Fuck you, new blood. And he walks to the ring and says into the camera, the N-B stands for new blood. I'll let you guess what the F-U is for, brother. (laughs) And he starts feuding with Billy Kidman. They have a whole bunch of matches with, with each other on TV. It just sucks. Hogan is like, and he's neither fish nor fowl at this point where he's like neither Hollywood Hogan yeah. nor is he the red and yellow old style in short order they do try to resuscitate the red and yellow and he comes out in the old garb but he's old now and he looks stupid <laughs> they try to turn back the clock they have uh, he has a couple of matches with Ric Flair in 2000 as WCW is absolutely on its knees and it's just horrendous they have a a, a Yapapaya strap match <laughs> at Uncensored 2000 
and Hogan can't say Yappa Pie. It just sounds like he's saying um, like Apple Yappa Pie. Apparently, it's some tor- some sort of indigenous tribe that has a okay. strap. I, I think this is all just <laughs> absolute nonsense. It just sounds like Hogan is saying like applesauce or something instead of Yappa Pie. <laughs> <laughs> and they Hogan and Flair at peak wrinkliness in their <laughs> underpants. Uh, <laughs> And then the crowd doesn't want it. And the, the, at this stage, the company is hemorrhaging money. Where, like, I think in the year 2000, they lost in excess of $100 million. And, you know, that's $100 million in 22 years ago money. So, and Hogan is still sitting pretty on an absolutely bloated, insane contract where yeah. he can't lose. Explain one thing to me. So there's a chapter at this point called Setting the, Setting the Record Straight, Brother. And again, it's <laughs> maybe one page long, maybe about a hundred words long. And he basically, he says nice things about Booker T. And then at the end, he's like, so contrary to what Vince Russo said in the ring that night at Bash at the Beach, I didn't hold Booker T back in any way, shape or form. The only one who did that was Booker T himself. So it's like, do you know what, do you know what that's about? Yeah, it's very hard to, to fully know exactly what happened. This is kind of like one of the great... Uh mysteries really the laps fan are doing a series on it at the moment and i think they're probably going to end up with the definitive take on what happened at bash of the beach 2000 but i think even still when all is said and done on what will very likely be hours and hours and hours of audio from the laps fan on this topic nobody is going to have all the full story now one of the things that vince russo did that really destroyed wcw was that he presumed that every fan was a, what they call a smart mark. So someone who is au fait with and up to date with the backstage gossip and that they were online and clued into the backstage politics and all this kind of stuff. And as someone who was probably like a peak wrestling fan at that time, I was 13, 14 in the summer of 2000, obsessed with wrestling. I didn't know any backstage gossip. I didn't follow wrestling on each other. I didn't know that there were such things as dirt sheets. I didn't know what a Dave Meltzer was. And so when they would do things like speak out of the side of their mouths to try to, you know, trigger the smart mark to understand the kayfabe terminology and all this, I didn't know what any of that was. And most people didn't. But Nash and Russo and a bunch of other kind of people in the company at that time were obsessed with this. So they were trying of, to be meta kind of before ex- before exactly. it was actually easy for fans to get access to this stuff because yeah the internet was there but like you didn't it didn't you didn't you didn't go through everything on the internet in your life at that time oh, exactly and a lot of people still didn't even have the internet yeah yeah 2000 are used it very uh i was going to say judiciously i'm sure that's not the right word but you know you were paying on a per 15 minute basis. You couldn't just like, you know, spend five hours on your phone most days and most weeks because that's what people do these days. It wasn't like that. So their meta is exactly the word. And Vince Russo has a kind of a postmodern approach to wrestling in the sense that he kind of wants to work the shoot, shoot the work, make everybody aware of the work, make everybody aware of the shoot, make people question what's the the work, what's the shoot. the, The fictional universe. And the shoot is the the real emotions and feelings of the of the wrestlers. So they they had uh, a her like a truly truly woeful pay per view main event um, 
at a pay-per-view called New Blood Rising, which is held in Vancouver, in the West Coast of Canada, uh, in the summer 2000, or fall maybe 2000. And the storyline going into the match was the headline match, which was Scott Steiner versus Kevin Ash versus Goldberg in a triple threat. And the main storyline was that Goldberg won't follow the script. <laughs> and that he's supposed to lose tonight, but maybe he won't. <laughs> That's like Groucho Marx levels of you know talk breaking the fourth wall. Like. It's it's and so uh, but like again, fans like the vast majority of fans at the time just don't understand what's going on. They don't know that Nash and Goldberg, you know, were cranky with each other backstage last week. You know, even though someone called up Dave Meltzer and told him, and it ended up printed in the newsletter because ninety nine percent of the audience doesn't subscribe to the Wrestling Observer, you know, in those days. And so at Bash of the Beach, there's what happened in the ring was that Hogan was supposed to have a, a title match with Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett got down on the on the mat and told Hogan to pin him. And the the the, uh, the commentators are like, oh, my God, Jeff Jarrett is uh, he's breaking with the script. They're supposed to have a match. And then Hogan basically just cuts a vituperative promo on Vince Russo and says, it's, got, it's shit like this. That is why our company's in the state that it's in, all this kind of stuff. And he storms off and gets on a plane and starts flying home. And then Vince Russo comes out and he calls Hulk Hogan a big, bald piece of shit. And says that you're an old bastard and you've been holding all the young people down and no more, we're going to take you out of it. And according to Vince Russo, this was a worked shoot where it was meant to look like they were being themselves really cranky with each other and angry yeah. with each other. But in fact, it was all by design. Yeah. And Hogan said... That he went into the, he said various things at various times, but at least at one stage, he said he went into the ring to wrestle Jeff Jarrett that night and then found himself just caught blindsided with uh, Jeff Jarrett lying on the mat saying, pin me. And that's why he caught an angry promo of Vince Russo. Other times he said he knew that that was going to happen and he knew that Vince Russo was going to come out later on in the night and badmouth him. But what he then claimed, and this went to court, in a very meta way, he claimed that what Vince Russo did when he called him a big Paul piece of shit and said that he was a politicking SOB and that he was holding the young guys down, that he defamed not just Hulk Hogan, but Terry Bollea. And this is where Hogan has to make the legal distinction between yeah, these two people, which one is one of them is a fictional character and the other is not. And hilariously, in the lead up to this match, when this is when Hogan is going around in his jeans and black bandana and the FUNB jacket, they're calling him Terry Balea. In the show, That's, in the fiction of the show. Yeah, because he's being uh, disparaged in ways that transcends Hulk Hogan. And now they're calling Terry Balea into question as well. And he has to stand up for Terry Balea. And you have Tony Schiavone legendary commentator, having to say things on commentary like, say what you want about the character of Hulk Hogan. What we're seeing now is Terry Bollea stand up for his family. <laughs> and it's just just like money is being lit on fire here. 
You know, like this will not draw flies, as they say. So on the night of, of Bash of the Beach 2000, Vince Russo ends up saying things that Hogan claims later in a lawsuit are defamatory of both Hulk Hogan, the TV character, and of Terry Bollea, the person. And he never wrestles in WCW again. In the book, he makes out like it's all his idea for Vince to come and buy WCW at this point. So he makes out like uh, Bischoff comes to him and says, <laughs> "No, and this is not impossible." Like you say, he was a he was a he was a big a big wheel down at the Cracker Factory. Um, he Vince or Bischoff says to him, "You know, you could probably get this for about five million bucks if you want to buy it, Hogan." Or Terry, and then Hogan is like, "I don't want to buy this. It doesn't come with any TV rights, right?" So then he takes it to Vince, and Vince is like, "Why would I want to buy this if there's no TV rights?" Hogan says, "Because I'm the biggest wrestling fan in the world, and I'm tired of watching Undertaker fight The Rock every week." <laughs> and it's all because of him that Vince comes in to buy it. Does he really say in the book that he was tired of seeing The Rock wrestle The Undertaker? In the book, he says that this is what he said to Vince. Oh my God. And he said, you so, need the storylines that WCW has. You could do them better with these characters and these storylines. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, there's just no truth to this yeah, in any shape or form. First of all, let's say he said that, which he almost certainly didn't. Nobody was tired of seeing The Rock versus The Undertaker. That was doing the greatest ratings in wrestling history. So this is just horrendous analysis from Terry. Uh, you know, he, he then says it gave him the whole WCW catalog, hundreds and hundreds of hours of wrestling. It was like buying the damn Beatles. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he did get the rights to Abdullah there's a lot the of guys and, and a lot of them had been big names, you know. But the, see, the, the thing what happened, this is why the invasion, which is kind of what came about of Vince buying WCW, why the invasion was a disaster, is that almost all of the big names in WCW had signed contracts in 98, 99 that would go on for three, four years. And so Hogan's contract, which was renewed in 2000 with even more sweetheart provisions beyond what he got in 98, like again, not just the 650 grand per pay-per-view plus all of these additional bonuses and all that kind of stuff. He had a, a fucking enormous downside guarantee where he was going to be paid like a couple of million dollars no matter what. And this went, this was locked in until 2002. And this contract was not with WCW. It was with Turner. So that meant that even when WCW was sold, the contract was uh, binding. And Nash and Hall and Goldberg and a couple of others had these kinds of contracts too. Now, some of the more mid-card and jabroni tier wrestlers got bought in or sorry, would have come with the purchase of WCW to WWF. And then it was up to WWF whether they wanted to keep them or not. But they, they assumed them when they bought the, the company. But all of the big name wrestlers didn't come in the invasion. If you remember the invasion in um, the spring and summer of 2001, it was all like the only two big name people who came and they took... they voluntarily opted out of their WCW contracts to, to get lesser um, WRF contracts were Booker T and DDP. That was there. Right. And they dropped DDP out immediately. They did this awful storyline where he was like a stalker of Undertaker's wife. Oh, yeah. And then they, he revealed himself 
took off at Ballyclava and said, ha ha, Undertaker, I'm the creepy guy who's been stalking your wife for weeks. And then Undertaker beat the shit out of him. And that was it. So immediately you've taken one of the big draws from WCW, a fan favorite, very good wrestler, someone who is champion and very positively associated with the brand. And you just job him out like into oblivion with one of your uh, big name wrestlers. So then Booker T was kind of the only serious, you know, well-regarded top tier WCW talent who came in. The rest of them, Hogan sat at home until 2002 getting paid by Turner. Nash and Hall sat at home. Um, Goldberg didn't come in until 2004 because they had these massive bloated contracts. So not only did Hogan absolutely not recommend that Vince buy WCW, but he didn't even come in with the purchase of WCW. So nonsense. We can't cover all of Hogan's career. uh, So I have to take us to a final chapter. We are going to follow it to the end of the book, so to speak. And Hogan takes this portion of his career to an end. And, and bear in mind, this book is written in 2003. Yeah. So he, he's fixing up for the, the final bit of his story at this point, which is his return to the WWF to fight The Rock, right? Which was, a, I remember this happening. This was, it was huge. This, yeah, it was a big it was deal. Huge. But <laughs> he describes his decision to finally come back and do this by basically visiting his his father in hospital on his deathbed and his his father you know calls him over and says Terry with his last dying breath and he says Terry I don't like what that guy Russo did to you and I don't like the kind of wrestling I see on television these days go back and fix it Terry go back and fix wrestling and fix what happened to you oh my god so that that obviously happened no no questions no question. I mean, it's 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 really, it's honestly, it's hard to speak rationally to that. Yeah, I mean, that's just that's just Hogan padding the story a little bit to put in some fake emotion. But what's uh, the name of the, what's the name of the ghostwriter? I mean, the ghostwriter invented that. I bet you anything. There's no way. Like, imagine, can you imagine Hulk Hogan's father saying, like, I don't like the way Vince Russo books wrestling on his deathbed. Yeah. It's like the way in Mick Foley's book at the very beginning, he says, like, you know, the first thing they did, what the company did was send me a ghostwriter. And he wrote an opening chapter and it was like this. And then he gives him like shitty, bad ghostwritten stuff. And he's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And then whatever else about that book, it is, it's very much him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's enjoyable for that reason. But, yeah. um, oh, so, so he goes on to talk about The Rock. God, this is awful. This chapter is desperate because he's like, he's trying to big himself up by making The Rock seem important, but it's only to make Hogan seem better. So he's constantly (laughs) saying things like, you know, The Rock had been on TV every week. He was a star with a million dollar movie coming out, getting tons of publicity. And I had come to Milwaukee with nothing but past accolades. Everybody, including me, expected The Rock to get a lot more cheers than I did. But this isn't one of his preliminary kind of, you know, face-offs with The Rock before the match. Um, yeah. But it seemed like it was, he's talking about the cheers. It seems like it was 60% Rock and 40% Hogan. I had barely shown my face and I was almost getting the same reaction he was. I said to myself, this could be a problem. Sure, Terry. Yeah. Sure, whatever. Everybody happy. stood up and cheered. <laughs> and, you know, he had the match with The Rock. And a month later, he was back in the red and yellow. And he dropped a leg on Triple H and won the belt. <laughs> So, you know, 
he, I think he was, uh, the machinations were in place. He knew what he was doing. So what was that like, aside from just Hogan trying to get himself back to where he wants to be, uh, like, what did that match mean for actual, was, was it anything important in the direction of where things went after this? Or like, I, rem- I remember watching it, but I can't, judge a, it's, I don't really it's, know. It's an absolutely legendary match. And it's really famous for the, the heel face dynamic shifting um, just because of the crowd. And uh, that was WrestleMania 18. 2002 held in uh, the Toronto Sky Dome and Hogan had always been an enormous draw in Toronto. He used to um, regularly do big houses there and they did like a big stadium event at the Canadian National Exhibit where he had a match with um, Paul Orndorff in 86, I think. And it was like one of the legit biggest attended wrestling events in all of North America up until that point. And then WrestleMania 3 eclipsed it. But he was very, very, very well liked in Toronto. And you could have imagined that the crowd would opt to cheer Hogan over Rock. But they were still going in there with the heel and face dynamic as, you know, NWO is bad, Rock is good. But the fans turned on it and they were super invested in Hogan. And it was just this, you know, our boy has come home feeling. And as someone who grew up on Hogan, and I was a Hulkamaniac as a kid and I, I was all for it at the time. And it is, it's a fantastic match, not because it's well wrestled, but just because the crowd makes it. And The Rock put in a fantastic performance, bumping all over the place to make, you know, a fairly crocked Hogan look, look good. Like he wasn't as crocked as he later was, but you could see he's, he's not moving all that well. But Ho- Rock was a, a great bumper when he needed to be. And the match was, it took on a kind of transcendent, you know, one one in a million moment. Well, I mean, Rock is one of the few guys who came after who you could put up with Hogan, just in terms of being a character, being a breakout person from more yeah, than just and, wrestling. And like, they are uh, kind of equal in a way in terms of they're very different, but they are both very important characters. They're just... Well, I think what's interesting about it is that, so like many would wilt in the face of Hogan, but Rock was... You know, as I said about Thatcher, the lady is not for turning. Rock, Rock was not for wilting. Nobody, nobody's light could, brine, could mm. shine bright enough to um, kind of outmatch The Rock. And what's interesting about the two of them as transcendent figures is that The Rock transcended wrestling to the point where people who are big fans of him often don't even associate him with wrestling. Mm. They associate him with like being massive, <laughs> like being just a in, physically yeah, enormous person being funny and, and being charismatic movie star and, charisma and just branded association that never happened to hogan hogan will forever be an 80s wrestler really yeah That's hogan is when you think hulk hogan you think wrestling when you think dwayne johnson you think movies yeah um, more or less yeah and, and that like that's i think like the rock is what hogan always wanted uh but he never got there and interestingly enough john cena is probably going mm. much further in achieving that goal of, you know, you use wrestling as your base and then you expand beyond that. Hogan could never expand. Like he was a fucking rotten actor, like a truly <laughs> rotten actor. Whereas I think Cena has yeah. proved uh, to be pretty, pretty good, all things yeah. considered. Yeah. Um, I didn't have high hopes for Cena as an actor. I mean, I'm not saying he's uh, <laughs> like Willem Dafoe or something, but like, you know, if you watch um, the uh, piece... Peacemaker, Peacekeeper, I'm forgetting the name of it. Is it Peacekeeper? 
Peacemaker, Peacemaker, I think. God, I'm forgetting it now. He's pretty solid in that. And the Suicide Squad, he's good. And he's had a couple of roles. And he was in Fast and Furious. He was all right in that. And Rock is, you know, again, just un, unbelievably charismatic to, yeah. Yeah. to, a, to fun, a, yeah. you know, an exceptional extent. Um, and But Hogan, rancid. Just <laughs> like his best performance by a million miles is Gremlins 2. <laughs> and that's just him cutting a promo. I just Although, wanted to say... He is, on, he yeah, is, yeah, that is him cutting a promo. <laughs> he's funny in Muppets in Space, too. I'll give him credit. <laughs> That's when he was Hollywood, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So way back at the beginning of this book, um, Hogan kind of does it, has a Dewey Cox moment where he's like, he's on stage or he's backstage about to go out for that, uh, for that WrestleMania with The Rock. And then it's like he has to stop and think about his whole life. And then the rest of the book is like a flashback. <laughs> then we've come, we come full circle. And that's it. I never want to talk about Terry Bollea ever again. Well, the funny thing is that he has, in all honesty, a litany of crimes, both real and imagined, in the 20 years yeah. after that, right? Because we're ending our story 20 years ago yes. because <laughs> he sticks around in WWE for a couple of more years, including winning the title. He even does a, a short gimmick run as a character called Mr. America, where he, he gets like banned by Vince McMahon, then he comes back under a mask called Mr. America. He has a match with, with Vince at WrestleMania 19 uh, where they oh, do, yeah, double, yeah. They, they do double, double juice and have like a hardcore match. <laughs> he has a, a very infamous match with Shawn Michaels at the 2005 SummerSlam where Shawn Michaels basically despised Hogan and in order to like get back at him because uh, Hogan refused to lose to Shawn Michaels and Shawn Michaels is like I'm a fantastic wrestler and I'm young and I can still go and there's money in my body whereas Hogan is done like we've extracted the value from him and Hogan said I'm refused to lose to you because you're too small and all the rest of it so Shawn Michaels uh, comically sold to the like where Hogan punched him and Shawn Michaels did like a somersault across the rig it's really something worth going out of your way to watch because of how stupid it is he also dressed up like Hogan um, and like did promos where he made fun of him and stuff. Then later on, Hogan goes to TNA, which was the uh, the kind of the primary competition for the WWE during the real peak monopoly years. And Hogan very nearly killed that company with teaming back up with both um, Vince Russo and uh, Russo was gone actually when Hogan was there, but he teamed up back again with, with Bischoff and did all sorts of horrendous things, including having a hardcore match with Sting, which is like really, really just sad. And he also famously, like in his first ever promo, he changed the ring in TNA, which was a five-sided ring, which is the Lucha Libre Mexican style. He changed it to the traditional ring and just got booed <laughs> on his first promo and then just proceeded to like eat the company alive. And when he gave his final promo, said, I'm done with the company left, the owner of the company, who was a total ignoramus, a woman called Dixie Carter, she held onto his legs as he walked up the ramp and she dragged him or he dragged her out. Uh, so he caused innumerable harms to TNA, which somehow survived and limps along to this day. Um, and yeah, his, uh, obviously we know in 2015, the horrendous racist diatribe was unveiled in the yeah. lawsuit related to... Um, him being videoed having sex with his friend's wife. 
Uh, but he's been brought back in from the cold. He's uh, allowed to be a legend again in WWE. Vince and, uh, waited out the requisite amount of time for the outrage yeah. to blow over and then just, you know, just bring him back. He, uh, he went backstage at uh, a WWE event and kind of tried to, like, supposedly was doing the contrite world tour and uh, a bunch of the black wrestlers say like can you explain to us what you're sorry for you know and uh he couldn't tell them because he doesn't feel no he's not remorse (laughs) or contrition because he's not capable of any self-reflection maybe (laughs) exactly so yeah he i'm sure he said to them like brother i can't be racist i have black friends um so big big e and kofi kingston a couple of other wrestlers who are very um very uh outspoken in trying to like bring racial justice issues uh to the forefront in wrestling they more or less made their displeasure at his uh, return known and tweeted things like uh i heard the word sorry but i didn't hear an apology and things (laughs) things like that so i think whenever he's rumbling around the the program these days there will be a bunch of younger wrestlers who are very displeased and yeah there's a bunch of you know nostalgic baby men who will never want hulk hogan to have anything other than positive happy associations but there's a bunch of other people who are just absolutely um uh, i suppose like unwilling to tolerate not just his litany of crimes in terms of stealing the spotlight, keeping people down, all that, but also like it's if you see or hear the tape, what he said is yeah. really, really indefensibly horrendous. And, you know, he's I would say like with with no degree of reservation that like Terry Balea is a piece of shit. <laughs> so we can end on that i suppose (laughs) i'm amused i'm amused to the moon and back by his his uh sure you know his his madness and his paranoia and you know the the hagiographic take that he likes to offer of his own life and career but uh yeah just a vindictive paranoid piece of shit i think as well he has become a fictional character and he can't he can't you've said many times like he, he couldn't tell you himself what was real because he doesn't know anymore and he doesn't he's been telling story the story version of his life for so long that he probably believes most of it now anyway yeah he uh he has been working for so long <laughs> that he can't stop fortunately <laughs> we can't stop so I'll, I'll call it there thank you very much Donald. you're welcome for your vast knowledge of all things all things hogan